Homeland Security Department contracting officers had a problem. Conducting market research is a constant struggle. And with the Biden administration's push to expand the industrial base, particularly with more small and disadvantaged businesses, acquisition workers needed some extra help. Scott Simpson is the digital transformation lead in the office of the chief procurement officer at DHS. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about how the Procurement Innovation Lab's new artificial intelligence for market research tool is improving and accelerating the search for new contractors. We had a couple of vendors on contract and we said, well, they're doing AI work for us already. Why don't we talk with them? And so our users went through a discovery session with those uh, vendors the discovery sessions led into development. Again, users were on board the whole time looking at uh, mock-ups and, and wireframes and all that kind of stuff. The users went into development and testing, and they came up with these uh, th- these three tools, AI for market research tools by the three companies. Uh, that went live in September. We awarded uh, three government-wide contracts that anyone across federal government can use. Uh, and basically what happens is the user will go into the tool, whichever one that they subscribe to, and put in a couple of easy search terms. Maybe they put in, uh, I'm looking for cybersecurity, and I want to know firms uh, that go back in the last two years that have done work with cybersecurity, Uh, and maybe they can put in some dollar value. They can look at whether they're looking for a certain strategically sourced vehicle. You know, we're from DHS, so we have a lot of strategically sourced vehicles like STARS-3, VETS, First Source 3, or two right now, I guess, as well as the small business. A lot of times, you know, hey, we've got a small business doing this work now. We want to continue to do that small business. And then they can hit search and they can see all of this data. And so the AI for market research tools are pulling data from federal sources. So you think about FPDS, you think about SAM, you think about the Small Business Administration, you think about USA Spending, FAPIS, you know, all of those sources. They're open market. Uh, Anyone can get to those sources. And so these vendors are using that data to look at what vendors have performed that requirement in the past as a starting point for what vendors could perform your requirement in the future. And so you've got a really nice list of vendors um, that are sorted by relevancy. So the most relevant vendors are at the top and the least relevant are at the bottom. And it doesn't show all of the vendors in the whole world uh, because that would be a lot of work. But it, it, it kind of samples them and shows you like a good 20 to 100, something like that. And you can kind of flip through and see which ones you think are, are capable or not. It shows you the exact record. So it shows you all of the data. It shows you the explainability for why they think that's relevant. So if you're looking for cybersecurity, it will show you here's the three to five contracts that had cybersecurity in that FPDS record, in that SAM record, to show you, hey, this is this is where we're coming from. So you can flip through there. It'll also show you really fast some visuals. And so you visualize, here's where most of these are purchased. Most of these are purchased on Alliant 2 or CIOSP3 versus Open Market versus Soup. And then it shows you those same kind of visualizations for more than half of these are done by small business. And in the next visualization, here's the visualization of those small businesses. So you can start to get a really quick look at where you might go with this. And from there, then you can start to do your targeted market research. You can say, okay, well, from this data, it looks like I can get this off of uh, CIOSP3. I know that that's one of my strategically sourced vehicles. Um, for what other agency you're at. I, I know it's a BIC, uh, best-in-class vehicle. Uh, so I'm going to go there, and instead of just doing a blanket RFI, request for information to the whole CIOSB3, maybe you just pick up the phone and you call some of the vendors that are on there. And it's so really hoping that this market research tool helps to speed along the process and give people that starting point to start their market research. 
the tool is just getting kicked off. I think you mentioned that it gets it launched sometime in, in the November, December timeframe. It's a pilot. You're piloting a DHS. Who are you piloting it with? How many users? And, and then what, what's the kind of short, long-term idea behind this? Yeah, and so we're piloting it at DHS across our, we've got many components at DHS, and so we're part of it, piloting it with our DHS components, including FEMA, ICE, uh, CBP, headquarters, and uh, USCIS. And the purpose of the pilot is to measure how well the tools work. So we're looking for feedback on on how the tools work, but we also did a pre-pilot survey to measure how often do people perform market research in a given year, how long does it take them, and what is the quality of that market research. And we did that in a series of 10 questions. For instance, we did ask people the quality of their market research, like how do you think the quality is? But we also asked three follow-up questions like, do your solicitations usually result in competition to try to measure quantitatively the quality? Because if I say, hey, my market research is really good, but then my solicitations don't result in competition, that's maybe a disconnect. But we did see those four questions, the quality plus the, the three follow-ups, they did connect well. And so there was a, a correlation there. And so we, we think that the answers were correct. So we did that as a baseline. Uh, and we, we had some really interesting data there. And we'll do that again after our six- to nine-month pilot to measure what's going to be that return on investment if we keep going down this path. You know, we, we're hoping that the time spent doing market research goes down and the quality of that market research goes up. You have about 200 users who are piloting this. Or have you had interest also from other agencies yet? Or is it just kind of starting that process of educating, learning, uh, making sure they know that this is a exists for them to potentially use? Yeah, so we're doing lots of um, engagement with them. Uh, when we when we built the systems, we didn't build just with DHS users. We built with federal users from across uh, the whole federal government. It's, it's a federal-wide vehicle so that any federal agency can use it. We're making sure that people know that it's out there ready for use. So we've spoken to, to groups like the Chief Acquisition Officers Councils. I've spoken to the Acquisition for Innovation Advocates Council. In addition, there are other agencies out there that are, that are definitely looking at doing their own pilots. Uh, there's one agency that's uh, potentially looking at using uh, the beta uh, licenses uh, to start their market research pilot. Uh, so there's there's interest out there. People are hungry for these things that help to reduce some of that time spent on, I won't say mundane things, but, you know, the, the low-value things so you can shift your work and your effort to the high-value things. We all know that the 1102 field is both a tough one to hire for, tough one to keep people for. They're um, definitely overworked, especially in that fourth quarter. And so anything we can do to get them more time to focus on that high-value work, that's what we're looking to do. And I think all the agencies are hungry for that. And market research, generally speaking, is not an easy thing to do. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. And I think that's really the key here is you're trying to take something that maybe can feel like a little bit overwhelming and, and put some sense around it, right? Some idea of, okay, where do I start? How do I get going? When you talk about this came from the users, what was the big user question you got from them uh, beyond help us do market research? Yeah, the, the big question really from them was, I don't know where to start. Where do I start my market research? And so, so often, in, you know, when they don't know where to start, they were posting like a request for information on SAM.gov to the whole universe only to find out, oh, this can be done with uh, an IDIQ or a BPA with five holders. And so all of those 90 or 100 vendors that responded, only five of them really responded, and I needed them. And so we're, we're trying to help them get to where do I start my market research? That's always the big question. Where do I start? Uh, so this is that starting point, showing them trends about where people have bought this in the past from other uh, government-wide agency uh, contracts or from uh, agency-specific contracts, as well as 
the, the other big question that we, we got was, should this be set aside for small business? And this helps to show you people who have set this aside for small business before and people who have not, um, and give you that information to kind of start, as well as at the end, you know, I, I always like recommendations uh, for who should I call for something, whether it's a, a leaky roof or whatever else. I like to know, well, who, who should I call, whether it's my neighbors or whatever else. And so this, this kind of gives you that point of contact. It gives you that list of names of vendors who have done similar work in the past that you can now call and ask them questions about. Scott Simpson is the Digital Transformation Lead in the Office of the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration, came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. 
it's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.